appreciate Brother Tim setting forth this very wonderful and beautiful ordinance in the church baptism. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized with John the Baptist, but Christ wasn't a sinner. When we're baptized, we should repent and be baptized. The Lord Jesus Christ was foreshowing, foreshadowing, you might say, what he was going to accomplish in his ministry, in his life. He was going to go to the cross in about three and a half years and be crucified and taken off and buried and be raised again after the third day. And so he begins his ministry in this manner, in this way, when he was baptized in the hands of John the Baptist. And when you make a profession of faith, you're simply saying that you love the Lord and you love what the Lord has done for you. You love his love and his grace and his mercy. And you want to walk in his footsteps. You want to follow him. As Brother Tim said, it's not a suggestion. It's a commandment of our, our Lord. This morning I'd like to begin in John chapter 11. I made brief mention of this last Sunday in our message. But I want to go back to a scene here where a man by the name of Lazarus has passed away. And the Lord Jesus Christ seemingly has taken his time arriving there. But the Lord is always on time. The Lord is never early. The Lord is never late. He's just always present on time. And when he gets there, he's met by Martha. And Martha says unto him, says, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. And the Lord says unto Martha, Thy brother shall rise again. And she says, Lord, I know he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And the Lord replies by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. And he that believeth me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth me shall never die. Believest thou this? Now the Lord is asking her this question. Do you believe what I just said unto you? Of course, we should always believe what the Lord says to us, whether we understand it or not. If he said it, we should believe it. She says, Yea, Lord, I believe thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, sometimes Martha gets a little bad rap, I think, because the first time we ever read her about her is in Luke chapter 10. And the Lord's at a house where she and Mary's at, and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and Martha is serving. And Martha seems to be somewhat perturbed that Mary's not helping her. So she comes to the Lord and makes it known to him and bids him to have her to help him. But the Lord says, Martha, Martha, art coming about with much serving. He says, but Mary has chosen a good part and shall not be taken away from her. That's the first scene we have of Martha. But I want you to get this scene of Martha because Martha first is the first one to greet the Lord Jesus Christ, number one. Number two, he says unto her, Thy brother shall live again, or be raised again. And she says, I know he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now that's two important truths. She believed in the resurrection, and she believed in the last day. Now not all the Jews believed in the resurrection. We read in Acts chapter 22 where the Pharisees did, but the Sadducees did not. We find Mary being a believer in the resurrection and also a believer in the last day. There is a day coming that will be the last day. And Martha understood that and believed that and she did not have the New Testament to rely on. New Testament had not been written at this time. The church was in the stages of being established and set up by the Lord Jesus Christ. She had the Old Testament 
And I'm sure perhaps she had read Daniel 12, 2. In Daniel 12, 2, the writer tells us, And many shall arise from the dust of the earth and shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. Now that statement there could be taken out and put over here in the New Testament very easily because what Daniel said is taught very clearly in the New Testament. Martha, having access to that, knew that there would be a resurrection. Notice what it says again, in many that are asleep in the dust of the earth. Now, man was made from dust, right? In the beginning, God created man from the dust of the earth. After his transgression, the Lord said, in the dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. That's where man's going back, where he came from. Many shall arise from the dust of the earth and shall awaken, meaning here the Bible speaks about death as being asleep, a period of inactivity, a period when you're not consciousness of time. Have you ever gone to bed and, and woke up having no idea what time it was, thinking it was time to get up the next morning only to find out you'd been asleep 30 minutes? Or have you ever been asleep 30 minutes and woke up and thought it was time to get up? <laughs> Because you aren't conscious of time while you are sleeping. And so the Bible equates death as being a sleep, not a soul sleep. Now there's a, a doctrine known as soul sleep that's been introduced from time to time throughout the centuries. That's not true. Your soul doesn't sleep. But your body remains here on the earth until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's spoken of it being in this type of state. Now, Martha had that verse of Scripture, and Martha believed in the resurrection, and she believed in the last day. Now, the reaction people have to the last day is interesting. Some people do not want to talk about a last day. Some people are fearful of a last day. And I would say, if you were of the free will persuasion, the last day would not be a day that you'd be really comfortable with. Because that would be a day, according to that particular belief, that everything you said, everything you've done, your entire life comes before God and you're judged. And you've just got to think, I believe, have I done enough? Have I believed enough? Have I worked enough? Have I believed hard enough, worked hard enough, worked long enough? Is it going to tip the scales in my favor or is it not? Now, to me, that's not a comforting thought. But if you understand the truth of the gospel, that all the sins of God's children were laid upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, and understand that God judges his children through his son, and therefore, when God sees you, he sees you through the perfection of his son's life, his offering, his sacrifice, and you're judged not guilty. Now, I can look forward to the last day with no problem. I'm looking forward to that last day. Here Martha says, I know he shall live again at the last day. Now, she's thinking about the end, the future. Now, there were those on that occasion who come there to mourn with Martha. And I want you to see this. They didn't come there to celebrate with Martha. They came to mourn with Martha. Okay? And they came... And they had the idea also that Martha had, well, this man who opened the eyes of the blind, surely he could keep Lazarus, you know, uh, from dying. 
So they're looking at the past. Martha's looking at the future, but the Lord Jesus Christ is going to bring the reality and the truth of the resurrection to the very present. The Lord says, I am the resurrection and the life. The Lord Jesus Christ taught the, re the, the resurrection on several different occasions. We look at John chapter 5, verse 28, and the Lord said, And marvel not at this, for the hour is coming when the dead hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. All right, they shall hear the voice of the Son of God. They've done good to the resurrection of life, they've done evil to the resurrection of damnation. The Lord taught the resurrection. The Lord also taught the resurrection by his miracles, by his works. Remember, there was a man named Jairus who had a little girl. She was 12 years old, and she died. And when he got there, you know what he told them? He said, behold, she's asleep. And they, they just scorned him about that. And he put them all out, except for Peter, James, and John and their parents. And the Lord took her by the hand and raised her from the dead. There's a time in Luke chapter 7 where this widow woman was taking her only son who just passed, who just died, taking him into the cemetery, and the Lord met them. And the Lord stopped it. And the Lord put his hand upon the buyer, that is the coffin. And he told that young man to arise, and he did. So we have a second example of the resurrection, a resurrection. And now, in just a short time after the Lord arrives at the scene here and talking to Martha and to Mary, he's going to go and he's going to raise their brother Lazarus from the dead. Now, this is the seventh miracle the Apostle John records in his gospel. It's not the last miracle that Jesus did, but it's the most dramatic from the standpoint. It may, got more response from both his enemies and also his supporters, any miracle that Jesus did. Now, the Lord says unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. And he that liveth and believeth on me, talk about somebody like Lazarus, he that liveth and believeth on me shall never die. Well, he that believeth on me, he says, he shall never die. And he that liveth and believeth on me shall never die. He's talking about Lazarus who was dead and also those that will not die. Let me, re let me get that again. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, yet though he be dead, yet shall he live. That's Lazarus. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. That's those that will be alive at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll be translated. He said, believest thou this? She says, yea, Lord, here's something else she believed. She believed in the resurrection. She believed in the last day. She believed what the Lord said about the resurrection, that there be some alive when the Lord came again, and they be translated, they will not see death. And she also acknowledged him as Lord as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm telling you, Martha was a spiritual giant. She was a spiritual giant. Again, there were those who had gathered together there with Mary and Martha to mourn with them due to the death of her, her brother Lazarus. Over the book of Genesis chapter 50, you go to a man by the name of Jacob has died. And his son Joseph comes and asks permission of Pharaoh to take his father Jacob out of Egypt and to bury him and Pharaoh gives permission. They mourned for him for 70 days. They didn't celebrate. They mourned for 70 days. When they got him where they were going to take him, there was a place where there was a threshing floor, you're going to find where they mourned seven more days. It's okay to mourn is my point. Okay? When you lose a loved one, it's time to mourn. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we got 28 
times and seasons, 14 opposites listed there. And you're going to find where it says there's a time to mourn and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn. The Lord Jesus Christ begins to sermon them out like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. It's normal to mourn. You need to mourn. It's a blessing to mourn. And the things I'm going to try to talk to you about here this morning are not just things you should hear at a funeral service. They're things you need to hear from time to time and become established in because they will help you in your walk of life. The Lord said, you should know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Now let's go back one more time. The Lord said, thy brother shall rise again. Martha's thinking future. Lord's talking present. Thy brother shall rise again. She says, I know he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, she believes there's going to be a resurrection. She believes there's going to be a last day. The expression last day in this context is used only in the Gospel of John, and it's used seven times. Five times by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, once by Martha right here. Let's see some of the places that the Lord uses. They're all in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, verse 30, beginning in verse 37, the Lord Jesus Christ said, All the Father giveth me shall come to me. Now, as I move through these three verses here, I want you to notice every phrase is significant and very important. All the Father giveth me. The Father gave somebody to the Lord Jesus Christ. All the Father giveth me shall come to me. And he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will that sent me, that all he hath given me, the second time he said that, all he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but raise up again at the last day. Who is it that the Father gave to the Son? Well, Ephesians 1, 4, 5, and 6 tells us, According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children of Jesus Christ to himself. According to the good pleasure of his own will, praise to the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. That's who's under consideration. All the Father giveth me shall come to me. They shall come to him in regeneration. They will all come to him in discipleship. And in verse 44, in just a minute or two, I will get to, will tell you how they come to him. But all the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh out of no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven. Now, every time you read about heaven, heaven's always up. That's why when Jesus speaks where he came from, he says he came down. Now, <clears throat> I don't know how all this works, but I know heaven is up. I know that much. Without a doubt, heaven is up, okay? He said, I came down from heaven. Not to do mine own will, but the will of him, the Father, which sent me, showing his will and the Father's will were identical, one and the same. But the will of him that sent me, all he hath given me, I should lose nothing. He will not lose a single one whom the Father gave him. That's called the doctrine of eternal security or the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Preservation, excuse me, preservation of the saints. And he says, I will, and I will raise them up again at the last day. Here's the first time that expression is used. The Lord Jesus Christ says it. And I'll raise him up again at the last day. What do you mean again? When you were born of the Spirit, 
God. You know what state you were in and what state you're now in? Before you were born of the Spirit of God, you're dead in trespasses and sins. After being born again, you're alive in the Lord Jesus Christ. You've gone from death to life. That's a resurrection. Inwardly, you're born again. Inwardly, you're raised from a state of death and sin to a state of life in Christ. That will occur in the lifetime of every child of grace, sometime between their conception and their death. It cannot fail. It will not fail. Brother Tim spoke about being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. As he stated, you're baptized in the name of the Father that loved you, elected you, named you, and gave you to the Son before time again. And you're baptized in the name of the Son who came down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of the Father which sent him, and that was to redeem you, justify you, and reconcile you, and save you from your sins. And you're baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit that will find you in Sometime between your conception and shall born you of the Spirit of God. The number is exactly the same all the way through. That's the way it is in Romans 8, 29 and 30. Moreover, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. How many did he predestinate? Those that he foreknew. For as many as he foreknew, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom did, how many did he call? As many as he predestinated. How many he predestinated? As many as he foreknew. And over whom he called, he also justified. How many did he justify? All that he called. All that he predestinated. All that he foreknew. And then he says, as many as he called and justified, he also glorified. How many did he glorify? As many as he justified. How many did he justify? As many as he called. How many did he call? As many as he predestinated. How many did he predestinate? As many as he foreknew. The number starts here, it ends here, it never changes. You understand? It never changes. The Lord said, I will raise him up again at the last day. He's been raised once, he's going to be raised again. When's he going to raise him? At the last day. Now, all of us have a last day. I don't know what day that is. All of us have a last day on this earth, right? But this last day is the last day for all creation. This is the last day that I spoke of last Sunday from 2 Peter chapter 3 when the Lord does come and the heavens are going to dissolve with fervent heat and the elements are going to melt with fervent heat and the earth and all things therein and all the works therein shall be burned up. That's going to happen at the last day. The Lord says, I'll raise him up again at the last day. Then he starts verse 40, the very next verse. And this is the Father's will which has sent me. Whosoever seeth the Son of God and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I'll raise him up again at the last day. He says it again. I'll raise him up again. If this was not important, the Lord wouldn't keep repeating it. Okay? He wouldn't keep repeating it. And the Jews murmured at him. And they said, who is this? Talking about being the bread of life that came down from heaven. Do we not know his mother and father and brothers and sisters? Yes, they knew them. They couldn't understand why he would say he came down from heaven when they knew who his mother was, his father was, his brothers and sisters were. The Lord said, murmur not. And then we come to verse 44. No man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him and I'll raise him up again at the last day. That's the third time. I'll raise him up again. Why does he keep repeating this? It must be important, isn't it? 
I'll raise him up again at the last day. Exact language. And he says, no man can come to me. Verse 37 says, all the Father that giveth me shall come to me. But he's going to tell you how you come to him right here. No man can come to me except. Now thank God for the exception right here. No man can come to me. What if the Lord had stopped right there? No man can come to me. Because see, no man can come to him in the way the Lord's talking about by human nature. It's not based upon man's will. Not based upon any desire. He doesn't have a desire. A dead man has no feelings, no emotions, no power, no strength, no energy. He is dead in trespasses and sin. No man can come unto me except the Father which sent me draw him. And I'll raise him up again at the last day. That's time number three. Now this is an effectual drawing. Now oftentimes the primitive Baptists use an expression that you won't hear anywhere else. In fact, they use quite a few expressions you won't hear anywhere else. Like dead alien sinner. The first time anybody comes to the primitive Baptist church and hears that, they think we're talking about somebody from Mars. An alien. <laughs> it means Separated. By nature, we are dead in trespasses and in sins. The Lord says, no man can come to me except the Father which sent me draw him. Now the one doing the drawing is active. That which is being drawn is passive. It's like Peter. The Bible says Peter drew his sword. Did that sword just hop out of the sheath? Did it just hop out of there? No, Peter put his hand upon the sword and drew it out. The sword was passive. Peter was active. A lot of you never have seen old-timey whales, I'm sure, some of the younger folks. Back when me and Karen had been married long, we bought this farmhouse and remodeled it, and we, our whale was actually on our back porch, screened in. The whale was there. And uh, the whale, we'd have trouble from time to time getting water out of there, especially it got kind of dry. And so... One of the brethren who's real good in, in carpentry, one thing, built a windlass. And then it built that windlass, he was able to put a rope on it and let a bucket down to the bottom of the well and get water there and bring it back up. Now, some of the older ones here know something about what I'm talking about. And I'm telling this one because I'm going to tell you what I ended up having to do. I was going to have to try to get that well a little bit deeper so it wouldn't be as scarce on water. So I got in the bucket, foot in the bucket, holding on the chain, and they let me down to the bottom. And when I was in the bottom, I just started scooping, filling that bucket up with water and mud, one thing or another, and he'd bring it up. And I could just see that heavy pail of water and mud weighing a lot going right over my head. But thankfully, the chain didn't break. Rope didn't break. <laughs> I eventually got out of there. The point is, we were active. What was coming up out of that well was passive. A lot of people draw, would draw water out of the well. The, the water just didn't jump out of the well. You had to let a bucket down there, down into the water, and you bring it out. You draw that water out. Somebody said, go draw me a bucket of water, right? Go draw me a bucket of water. The water is passive. Who drew the water is active. In the work of regeneration, the sinner is passive. It's God who's active. He's the moving force, you see. No man can come to me except the Father which sent me, draw him, and I'll raise him up again at the last day. Now we come down to verses 53 and 54. 
And the Lord Jesus Christ said, Whosoever eateth not my flesh and drinketh not my blood hath no part with me. But whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I'll raise him up again at the last day. Time number four. The Lord says this four times in John chapter 6. How do, you eat the bread? How do you eat the flesh of the Son of God? How do you drink His blood? Now this whole thing in John chapter 6 is centered around a, a statement made by the Jews when they asked the Lord to show us a sign. And they went on to say for, you know, God gave, for they had manna in the wilderness. That's what they bring up. The Lord tells them to begin with that Moses gave you not that manna in the wilderness, but my Father gave, giveth you the true bread. The Lord's going to compare his life to that manna in the Old Testament day. Now, he says, Moses didn't give you that manna. Moses didn't pray for that manna. Moses did not bring that manna down. Moses did not design the situation for manna to be given. He did not procure the manna. Moses had nothing to do with the manna other than instructed Israel how to gather it. It was God who sent the manna down from heaven. It was God who gave them the manna. And that manna was a miraculous, uh, uh, you might say, food supply for them for 40 years. They ate manna for 40 years, and it sustained them during their wilderness journey. But the Lord says later on, he says, all that ate the manna, they all died. But whosoever eateth my uh, flesh and drinketh my blood shall never die. Now, he's talking about a vital thing here. He's talking about an experiential thing here. He's... Obviously, he's not talking about eating in his literal body and drinking his literal blood. No one ever did that, of course. And the doctrine of transubstantiation is a heresy that came into existence several hundred years after the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you eat the unleavened bread and drink the wine at communion time, nothing miraculous takes place on the inside of you. But the Lord said, Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life. He says, for my flesh is life indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And whoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. See, notice the union? We're talking about a union right here, a vital union right here. It's been established. When you're born of the Spirit of God, the divine nature of God dwells inside of you and gives you an endless supply of nourishment and strength to help you along the journey of life. It never runs out. When they gathered the manna, if they didn't gather enough, they came up short. If they gathered too much, it perished. And everybody ate that manna, they all died. But the ones in consideration here will never die. Why? Because Jesus Christ is their life. Is Christ in you the hope of glory? That's what the Lord is stating right here. Now, the Lord four times in John chapter 6 says, I'll raise him up again at the last day. Martha says, Lord, I know he shall rise in the resurrection at the last day. Maybe Martha heard the Lord's discourse in John chapter 6. She believed in the resurrection. She believed in the last day. In the Old Testament, the resurrection was taught, but not in as clear terms, other than Daniel 12 too that I gave you earlier, as we read over here in the New Testament. But the Lord Jesus Christ taught the resurrection by word, by his miracles, and by his own life. Once again, notice what the Lord said 
in John 5 and 28. Marvel not, for the hours coming, there in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They've done good to the resurrection of life, they've done evil to the resurrection of damnation. The Lord taught the resurrection there. And notice he spoke of the resurrection of, of the good and also of the evil. Right? Then he proved the resurrection in his miracles. We already went over of the widow's son, Jairus' daughter, and in just a little bit, he's going to raise Lazarus from the grave. But he also proved it by his own resurrection, obviously. In Matthew chapter 16, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I must go to Jerusalem. And he says, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, I'll be apprehended of them, and they shall kill me, but I will rise again after the third day. The Jews, the Pharisees, was always asking for a sign. And the Lord said in Matthew 12 and 40, No sign shall be given unto thee, except the sign of Jonas be in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. Just like Jonas in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. He was not in the heart of the earth three, part, part of three days and part of three nights. The Lord Jesus Christ was in the heart of the earth a full three days and a full three nights, 72 hours. That's why he was crucified. He was placed in that tomb late Wednesday afternoon, not Friday. Won't go into that this morning. He was not in there just part of three days and part of three nights. No more than Jonah was in the belly of the whale part of three days and part of three nights. He was in there a full three days and a full three nights. That's the only sign the Lord gave them. It's a sign of his death, burial, and his resurrection. So the Lord proved it by that. The Lord took the resurrection, you might say, off the pages of Holy Writ and brought it into the reality of his own self. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Wherever we're at and wherever the Lord Jesus Christ is, there's always resurrection power. That's why you read this in Ephesians 1.19. He says, what is the greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the work of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead? Do you believe what I'm saying here this morning? I trust. If you do, you believe it by the power of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that abides within inside of you. Otherwise, you couldn't believe. We've never seen the Lord Jesus Christ in these eyes. We read about him in here, and I believe with all my heart. I have no problem believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago that Jesus walked the shores of time here for about 33 and a half years, that the Lord Jesus Christ, this man, was God's beloved son who came down from heaven and he suffered and he bled and he died. He was crucified, made an offering to God the Father on my behalf, was taken down off the cross, put into a barred tomb, went three days and three nights, was resurrected, spent 40 days upon the face of this earth and went back to glory. I have no trouble believing that, thank God. I believe it's so strong I'm almost... Tempted to say it again. But anyway, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me, though he be dead, just like Lazarus, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? He asked Mary, Martha, do you believe what I just said to you? She says, yea, Lord. <laughs> I love that quick positive response. Yea, Lord. <laughs> I believe thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then just a short time after that, he was going to prove he was the resurrection when he called her brother Lazarus from the grave. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. And he came forth with no hesitation. 
He came forth without any delay. He just simply came forth, and he was, by the way, would you say he was passive or active in that? Who was active? Jesus was. Who was passive? Lazarus was, right? Now, sometimes you read about the resurrection. You'll read about the resurrection of the good and the evil or the wicked and the righteous at the same time. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 22 is before Felix, the governor, and he declares unto him that he believes everything is written in the law and the prophets, and that there be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. The Lord Jesus Christ, I've already mentioned this a couple of times, let's go back to John 5 and 28. He said, marvel not at this, for the hours come in future when they are in the graves, those who are dead corporally, physically, literally, shall hear his voice and shall come forth, some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of damnation. We call this a general resurrection. The good and the evil are both going to be resurrected. The Lord Jesus Christ taught this in Matthew chapter 25. When he said, the time will come when the king of glory shall come with all of his holy angels with him. And he shall be a shepherd which divideth his sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on the right hand, the goats on the left. Get the picture here. Here's a, here's a shepherd. He has a flock. There are sheep and goats here. Sheep and goats are not the same thing. And he's going to take the sheep. He's going to put them on his right hand over here. He's going to take the goats put them on his left hand over here. Then he's going to speak to those on his right hand. And he says, come you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Here's a kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world, a people that was prepared by the Lord Jesus Christ in covenant to begin with. Then their sins were taken care of on the cross, and now they've been born of the Spirit of God legally and vitally. They've been taken care of. He says unto them, Come ye blessed of my Father. You are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you when? From the foundation of the world. He says, When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was in prison, you visited me. Notice, you read the word gospel anywhere in there? You read the word gospel anywhere? No, you don't. What are you, what are you reading? You're reading the kind of life they lived. They reached out. They ministered. They helped. And they didn't do it to be recognized because their response is this. When did we do these things, Lord? And the Lord said, if you've done this one at least to my little ones, you did it to me. When you help somebody without thinking of any recompense, it's just like you're doing it to the Lord. Now, if you do something for somebody else to try to get them in debt to help you back out, the Lord's not too pleased with that kind of work. He's not pleased with that, Right? He says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When did we do these things, Lord? They were not keeping a record. He didn't say anything about those on the right hand or those who believe the gospel of the Lord and Jesus Christ were baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and, and persevered all the way to the end, etc. Nothing said about that. He's describing the life they live. Now, don't misunderstand me. Preaching the gospel is important. Being baptized is important. Walking the pathway of discipleship is highly, highly important. That's how God is honored and glorified and praised here in this world. 
But not all God's children are going to hear the gospel. Not all of God's children are going to be baptized. To some people's surprise, heaven's going to have a lot of people in it who never were baptized in this world. I don't want you to misunderstand and minimize baptism. I'm going to tell you, baptism is really important. There is a salvation, as Brother Tim said, in being baptized, especially when you're baptized with the understanding. See, baptism is a theological statement. First of all, it shows your belief and conviction in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It shows your belief that, again, you're baptized in the name of the Father who loved you when you were not lovable. He loved you before time ever began. And you're baptized in the name of the blessed Son of God who left heaven's pure world, my friends, to come into a life where he would be ridiculed and criticized and he would have to suffer more than any man has ever suffered in this world. And he came here because of you, because he carried you in his heart, carried you in his bosom, because the Father gave you to him and he loved you with an everlasting love. And he was willing to go through all the torment of hell itself to bring you into a place called glory. If that's not worth walking down the aisle for, I don't know nothing that is. And you're baptized in the name of the Holy Spirit that when you were not looking for God, God came to you. When you didn't show any love for God, God still loved you. When you walk it according to the course of this world, the Father, my friend, still saw you and reached out from heaven for you and born you of his spirit. It's a theological statement. And so you rise to walk in newness of life, to live a dedicated life to Christ, to try to walk in the footsteps of the Savior to hold his hand and walk in fellowship with him along the journey of life. <laughs> That's what discipleship is, brethren. It's have the companionship, the friendship of the Lord and Jesus Christ, communion with the Lord and Jesus Christ, to feast upon him as the bread of life, to indeed to eat his flesh and drink his blood. When you come here as you have this morning and you sing the songs of Zion, and you're singing from your heart and you're doing as Paul said, you're making melody in your heart to the Lord. You're singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. You're not just singing going through the ritual of the academics of it. You are singing from here to him, my friends, in heaven. And then when Brother Ronald, if he's blessed to preach at all, you're able to take the truth of God's word about his wonderful son, his beloved son, his son who came here again as the true bread from heaven, as the living bread, as that bread that came down to give life to his children. And you're able to feast upon his everlasting love at his mercy and his grace and how he loved you again so greatly that he was willing to lay his life down for your sake and my sake. What great love is this? Oh, what wondrous love is this, the hymn writer said. And for a few minutes of time, your soul is lifted up and strengthened and it's nourished and you feel like just at least for a little while you can charge hell with a water pistol. Now tomorrow morning, you might not feel like you can go with a fire truck and do it. But at least right now, you feel like you can do that. The Lord gives you that power and strengthen your heart. I, you know, I wish I could explain it better. 
I wish I just had a better vocabulary to get it across to you. <laughs> I wish I could have a, I don't know. I just wish sometimes I feel like I fall so far short in getting the message across. It's, it's, a, it's the most wonderful message ever given to mankind. So I said, Brother Lawrence, if I believe what you believe, I don't understand why you'd even want to preach the gospel in Jesus Christ. If the gospel is not designed to try to populate heaven, why do you preach, my friends? I want you to know and understand what great love God has for you. I want you to know and understand that you had a debt that was so great that it was impossible for you to even make a dent in it, much less put it away. But the Savior came and he hung there upon the cross, made an offering to the Father, and the Father received it, and the debt was wiped clean, the debt was removed, the debt was taken away. The blood was shed, remission of sins has taken place, and now you are going to go to heaven someday. At the last day, you're going to be resurrected and go to heaven someday and leave this old world behind. I tell you, if you was a million dollars in debt and somebody went down to the bank and paid your debt off and you didn't know anything about it, you know what? In your mind, you're still in debt, aren't you? Now, the debt's been paid. You don't owe that money anymore. Think you'd like to know that? Do you think you'd like to know that? Somebody comes along and says, uh, hey, I got some good news for you. You say, I, I tell you, I could use some good news. I'm a million dollars in debt, and I, and I don't have a farthing to pay it with. Well, I got some good news for you. Well, okay, okay, what is it? What is it? You don't owe that no more. What do you mean I don't owe that no more? Somebody went down there and paid for it. That's too good to be true. Somebody paid my debt. Why? Mercy. <laughs> Grace. <laughs> Love. Somebody loved you enough to do it. Somebody had the means to do it. Somebody <laughs> loved you to such an extent as I'm going down there, I'm taking that debt and I'm wiping that debt out. And I just want to let you know that you don't owe it anymore. How do you think you would feel? And this is just nothing compared to what Jesus did. Nothing. I got a feeling I'd want to know who done it, wouldn't you? <laughs> well, let me tell you his name. Jesus. I feel you already knew it. Jesus. <laughs> but you owe more than a million dollars. You owe an amount you can never begin to comprehend. And Jesus come along and wiped it away, my friends. That's why I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want people to come out from under the burden of false doctrine. I want them to come out from under the burden of, uh, uh, you know, of, of erroneous thinking. I want them to see the light. I want them to rejoice in this good message of grace and grace and grace and more grace. I left out a whole lot I was planning on saying. But I said a whole lot I hadn't thought about saying, so I guess it all come out all right. Okay. <laughs> what do we have? 